Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 134 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We have three cases today, and I'm on the road again, uh, surprisingly or not. Uh, I'm in New Orleans this week, so hopefully uh, the background noise and stuff is not too uh, distracting to you. And we apologize last week for the extra one and a half minutes in the second segment of dead time uh, in editing and trying to fix it. Uh, Pat and I weren't able to fix it, so we apologize for that, and so away we go. We have three cases today. As I mentioned, our first case is from the Indiana Supreme Court, Boozier versus Gardner. The second case is from the Illinois Appellate Fourth Professional Solutions Insurance Company versus Haraparthi. And our third case today is from the Illinois Appellate Court, Third District, Ori versus City of Naperville. With that, let's turn to our first case today. What injury is sufficient to confer standing under Indiana law for a plaintiff to bring a claim under the Home Improvement Contractors Act, IC 24-5-11, and the Deceptive Consumer Sales Act, IC 24-5-0.5. Is there a minimum amount of actual damage that is required, or is the statutory damage of $500 recoverable in the absence of any damage? We know the answer in Illinois on some of that, Pat. Uh, those are among the questions well, that emerge. I'm gonna reference that when we get to that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when the Indiana Supreme Court heard Hoosier Contractors LLC versus Gardner, the state high court framed a different question that was also addressed. And the question that they framed is, Hoosier Contractors sued Gardner for breach of contract. Gardner counterclaimed on behalf of himself and a class of those similarly situated, alleging violations of the Home Improvement Contractors Act, and a class was certified. The Hamilton Superior Court later denied Hoosier's motion to decertify the class but issued an order requiring the notice of class action to advise potential class members that they could be liable for Hoosier's attorney fees if Hoosier prevailed at trial. And that's the end of what they framed the question as. The court grappled with whether prevailing party and the statute only meant the plaintiff to recover their fees, but really struggled with whether absent class members were parties that could have fees assessed against them. Was it proper to put the warning on the class notice or was it a bald attempt to encourage class members to out opt, opt out or object? Uh, we got a reading from Brian Garner's and Justice Scalia's interpretation of legal text during the oral argument in this case on what it means when a legislature instructs that a law is to be liberally construed. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this interesting Supreme Court case. Thanks, Dan. And uh, it, it, I, I, uh, there's a lot here. And if you are uh, interested in these kinds of issues, I really commend the oral argument to you. It was really excellent. Both the advocates as well as the justices were really engaged in the issues that are, are presented here. Uh, Dan presented, uh, I tr we tried to get to all of them in the, in the summary. I, I think we've done that. Uh, the one thing to, to start with is transfer was granted in this case. So this is not a situation where they're, they're having to worry about trans, whether they're going to grant transfer. They've granted transfer. 
And the first part of the argument was about this standing issue, about whether there's a claim that can be brought at all. And as Dan referenced, uh, and as I think we know in Illinois, you don't actually need a, a actual damage. That's the Rosenbach case. Um, we're going to talk about BIPA later in the show uh, because another big BIPA case came down uh, with more on the way. Uh, but it, you just need to have a statutory violation to be, quote, aggrieved under Illinois law sufficient to state a cause of action. And in this case, I think there were two technical violations of the Home Improvement uh, Home Improvement Contractors Act, HICA, which is how it was called throughout by Bench and Barr. So Judge, e Judge Easterbrook would not be happy. Lots of, uh, lots of acronyms in this case. Uh, uh, they, did, they did go with DCSA, but they did, they did pronounce it HICA. Everyone's having a hiccup during the argument. So they really struggled with how you're supposed to read this and one of the justices pointed out, so hold it, four judges have already looked at this and have all said, your argument, defense counsel, doesn't work. This is not a, you don't have to show damages in order to prevail. $500 is you know, for these violations. So this is a case, the underlying facts are somewhat interesting. There's a there's storm damage to the plaintiff's house. And he a uh, this uh, PA comes out and is going to offer to fix the, fix the roof. They... They get fifty. They offer uh, to repair it for fifty thousand dollars. It's unclear from the appellate argument, appellate opinion, whether Cincinnati, the insurer, actually agreed to the fifty thousand. But ultimately, there was an increase in the, in the cost to sixty thousand. Cincinnati did, apparently did not agree to that. And at some point, the plaintiff goes and gets the roof repaired for eighteen thousand. Repudiates the contract with Hoosier. Hoosier sues the defend sues the uh, the homeowner who counterclaims with this class action saying that the contract that Hoosier presented to him was uh, not compliant with the Home Improvement Contractors Act. Illinois has a very similar statute that is incorporated like this one into our Consumer Practice, Consumer Fraud and Deceptive Pra uh, Trade Practices Act. So this is a very common thing. So the, so the focus of the case has become the class action, not the original action brought by the, uh, brought by the contractor. And so with the, the class gets certified and then they have to prepare the notice and the notice goes out saying that, Hey, you absent class members, you may be responsible should this case go to trial and who's your prevails. And the trial court included this, the appellate court said, yeah. And the, let's just say the, the Supreme court's really struggling with that. Ju Chief justice rush in particular said, you're asking us to be the first court in the country state or federal, to say this. The argument I didn't hear, and one I have made before in other contexts, is either they're a party or they're not. They, 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 if you can't, it's like being sort of pregnant. Which is it? The purpose of a class action is to aggregate claims uh, that are too small to bring individually and that have similar of a similar nature and put them together. The idea that they are not parties, if they lose, doesn't make any sense to me. I get that it's maybe unfair, and I get that uh, the intention of the statute may be to the prevailing party, they have the plaintiff in mind, but that's not what the statute says. The statute says they get their prevailing, the prevailing party gets their fees. I also get that the reason to include that is to encourage people to opt out or to object to the class, uh, because they don't want to be, have the potential of being saddled when the with attorney's fees, when the, we don't know how big this class is, but let's suppose 
there's 10,000 people just to keep things. Let's suppose there's that many. There's 10,000 in the class. And so let's suppose the fees are half a million. Well, that's going to far outstrip any potential recovery these plaintiffs could get uh, in the event that Hoosier prevails and then comes back after them for their fees. Very easily, very easy to see how fees could well exceed for the defense half a million dollars, especially since they've gone all the way to the Supreme Court and they haven't even tried the case yet. Um, the so it's it's I don't understand how they're not a party. Um, the whole point of a class action is to aggregate parties. You can have classes of plaintiffs, as is the case here on this counterclaim, or you can have, or you can have classes of defendants. That's possible to do too. It's far more. It's not nearly as common to have classes of defendants, but you would never say the class of defendants, the absent class defendants aren't parties. I mean, of course they are. You're suing, you're trying to get money from them. Um, so I, I don't understand how, uh, as I say, you're either in the case, or you're not in the case. Um, but it seems very unlikely the court is going to come out that way where these people don't know what's really going on. Now, whether they find that the, it should go on the notice is a different question. But if they find that they're not liable for it, then obviously they don't go on the notice. And then this poor, th- th- then it just changes the burden a different way. It puts it all on the on the present class members, you know, on the class representative. So he's going to be responsible for all of the fees because they don't see the court saying that the statute doesn't say that if the defendant wins, that the defendant doesn't get their fees. So they get it all from Mr. Gardner if they prevail. Why should he have to saddle that burden when he took on the burden of being the class rep? All he is is the class rep. He's not the class. The class, as you recall, is certified. This is why they're doing the class-wide notice. Um, So there's a lot of really tricky issues here. I I don't think the defendants are going to win on the statutory argument that there is no standing because there's no injury. Although the plaintiff did really struggle with what were the damages. He was kind of all over the place. It was a bit like trying to nail jelly to a wall as he tried to figure out, you know, well, is it the bringing of the lawsuit against your client? Is it the signing of the contract? Is it the, what is the damage? Because he has a roof for $18,000. There's a dispute over whether he kept the difference between what the insurance company wrote and the $18,000 that he spent to fix the roof. By the way, he's happy with the roof uh, that was repaired by somebody else, apparently, not by Hoosier. So he may have come out ahead in this deal. Um, I, I, I don't understand where action, where their damages are. And simple, and, and he, where was, how was he, how was he uh, deceived? Uh, he didn't proceed with the contract. He, uh, he, he went another route and what they're seeking are the liquidated damages for his having breached the contract. So they get 20% of the contract amount is their claim on the, on the original complaint. Boy, are they wishing they hadn't filed that thing um, for 20% of 50,000. Uh, they're wishing they had uh, just kept their mouth shut, ate the money, and, and went on their merry way because getting a class action in, in response is not good for business. Uh, this may or may not be covered by insurance. Uh, this may or may not lead to the regulators coming in and, and giving them a hard time. It may or may not lead to more people giving them a hard time with their contracts. Apparently, they've reformed their contract so that it complies with uh, Indiana law now. But uh, there's real... Uh, uh, they're real, there's real uh, uh, gnashing of teeth over there, I imagine, over having filed this complaint. A lot here, a really, really interesting case. And, and I would commend people to listen to it 
because we hear this issue almost, it seems every week at the, at the Supreme Court, the United States, uh, some form of standing argument. And it's, it's beginning to fill, it's, it, we're seeing it more in the states. And it's an argument that needs to be brought. Uh, it's an important argument, but the states seem to be far more liberal in terms of what they're allowing to constitute standing than is the Supreme Court. We'll see if the Supreme Court continues down that path. If you recall the TransUnion case, that the dissent was written by Justice Thomas, joined by the three more liberal justices uh, in a 5-4 split, um, where he's kind of said, well, Congress can create causes of action and statutory in nature, and that can support uh, a claim. So a lot there. Uh, and uh, Dan, anything to add or things I missed on this one? You know, one, one thing, Pat, that, that uh, comes to mind is in, in the AAA arbitrations for consumer complaints, uh, consumer claims, uh, the language is pretty similar to this that says the prevailing party can get fees. But I was just on a, on a, a CLE session uh, that clarified that it's only in the consumer cases, at least at AAA, they're the smaller cases where it's individuals, there's not a class action, of course, because class actions usually not permitted by contracts of consumer uh, goods and services but in those instances and I don't think they're allowed by the AAA rules either to uh, right right no nah, no nah. but what but what 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 they say is that the only person that's entitled to recover fees and costs if they prevail is the claimant uh, which makes some sense you know otherwise um, you know in this instance like you said if this class rep is exposed to all the fees and costs if he loses on this that's a pretty significant burden and you know it, it would probably uh suppress or, or or make sure that people would think two or three or a hundred times before they never file a, a class action or purported class action because that's pretty significant right he's well, whatever the damages are that he, like you said he's trying to seek here the, the exposure if the class is is deemed to be that he loses that's pretty significant for a class rep. So it'll be interesting to see what the Indiana Supreme Court does with this case. It will be. And so with that, we'll take our first break and we will come back with Professional Solutions Insurance versus Kara Harthy. back for segment two of episode 134 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and the justices just may throw up their hands on this one, as they were critical of counsel for both sides during our argument. In Professional Solutions Insurance Company versus Kara Parthy, the Illinois Appellate Court 4th District will address whether there is insurance coverage for a doctor on a, under a professional liability policy for alleged intentional and criminal conduct in drugging and then allegedly sex, sexually battering the plaintiff. The plaintiff pled a six-count complaint against the defendant doctor, the first four of which alleged sexual battery, and the last two alleged medical malpractice. The defendant pled guilty to two crimes arising out of the conduct, assault and reckless conduct. Note, not the original felonies that included, I believe, some sort of criminal sexual assault. And here are the myriad issues that led to the court's frustration. The charging document, the conviction, and the plea were not in the record, so the court was unclear on what was pled to. Does the absence of the inclusion in the record preclude review and require reversal? How is the court supposed to square the insured pleading to one specific intent crime, assault, with another general another general intent crime, reckless conduct, in determining coverage? I'm not sure it matters as 
there is both an intentional act exclusion as well as a criminal act exclusion. The issue then becomes whether the injury arose entirely out of the criminal act, which brings us to the next question, because the plaintiff was not clear on whether there was a separate injury between the alleged administration of the drug that immobilized the plaintiff, the medical malpractice counts, that's counts five and six, and the alleged sexual battery, that's counts one through four. If there is one injury that arises out of the same conduct, how could there be coverage? This was a persistent question from at least one of the justices. Is the complaint to be read as a whole, or can it be read as the first four counts alleging sexual battery, and then the last two counts alleging medical malpractice? And is the 622 affidavit of merit to be considered in the the analysis? That is, is the 622 part of the complaint for the purposes of determining coverage, or is it just a technical requirement separate from the complaint? For those unfamiliar uh, Illinois requires a certificate of merit by a doctor in the same field as the defendant doctor that certifies that there is a valid cause of action. The doctor doesn't have to be identified, but his field does. Uh, and he, they, in there, they set forth why they think there's a cause of action. It has to be attached to the complaint. Whether it is part of the complaint is the issue. Turning back to the conviction and its role in the matter, does, does collateral estoppel apply to preclude coverage where there is a guilty plea in this circumstance? And does the court have to de- have enough to decide the issue? Should the insurer have issued a bill of particulars or other discovery to the defendant underlying plaintiff, or was the insurer entitled to rely solely on the guilty plea in denying coverage? In terms of determining whether there were professional services being rendered under the insuring agreement, what consideration should be given to the fact that the plaintiff had an appointment with the defendant the day of the alleged battery for some medical service? Obviously not what occurred. Uh, Dan, tell us about this argument that has got things going everywhere. Yeah, Pat, that's a, a great introduction and summary. And I want to start at the end because one of the arguments of the uh, plaintiff and the underlying complaint, the, the, the uh, uh, victim here, uh, was exactly that, um, that uh, the appointment itself was a separate thing. And, and the response from and some of the justices said, well, there was a, a legitimate appointment. So the, how do you really separate that? Uh, as you noted, uh, when I listened to the appellant's uh, presentation and argument, the, the justices in this case were very skeptical, uh, to say the least, asking a lot of questions, pushing back on the uh, on the insurance company. And I thought, well, that you know, we know where this is going well, from the questions. Clear, Dan, you're, you're right. I forgot to mention the the insurance company lost. That, right. So the insurance company they lost. They lost below. So there, that's good. I forgot to mention that. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And and so, you know, you listen to to, to those those uh, initial comments and, and uh, discussions. Uh, the the appellant in this case reserved eight minutes of rebuttal time, which is quite a bit, uh, but. No, not unusual. He needed it. And so that, I, he did. And so I thought, you know, it's, just, it's, it's like watching the first half of a football game where one team's dominating. You go into halftime, come out of locker, you're like, I'm going to turn this game off because it's not even interesting. And, oh, my God, the, the, the appellee stood up. And there was all kinds of this discussion, you know, the, uh, you know, um, like you said, and, and, and I, felt, I felt a little bit bad for the appellee's advocate because he was not involved in the criminal case. He was not involved in, there were two of them. He was not involved in the underlying uh, declaratory judgment action. He was not involved in the underlying uh, 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 case. Um, but as you mentioned, one of the difficulties here, and as we know in Illinois, it's an eight-corner uh, rule, right? You look at the complaint, but you, you know, 
I, I think the big debate here in this case was, can you go beyond or can you use reasonable assumptions here that everything was related? And in the first four counts, you mentioned the first four counts were all based on the, the plea, based on criminal conduct. The uh, doctor in this case admitted to some criminal conduct, some intentional conduct here. And what happened, it's a bit unclear, but what, what, what happened was, and I, I don't know how this uh, overall went, but he gave anesthesiology to her wrist, I believe it was, for some injury, her thumb. And that numbed her like like we, anybody who's ever been uh, given local anesthetic, it, it, it numbs you. Uh, to to an extent, it seems to have immobilized. Her. He gave her something right. stronger. So strong, right, right. So it was. It seemed like that. You know, there, there, there may be a separate malpractice claim for the anesthesiologist if, if he had one in there. No, no, or, he is. You know, I think he did it himself. He is. He did it himself. And uh, one one of one of the uh, justices tried to get get to some of this. By asking a hypothetical about an anesthesiologist that was kind of walled off from the rest of the doctors and and they were doing something on the lower half of, of, of a patient's body say and he administered the anesthesiology wrong and then proceeded to intentionally assault somebody and it wasn't seen and i think you know i think that's distinctive and i think that the both the the, the the council really was able to distinguish that that fact pattern because in this case as you said, Pat, the real mess here is it seems like the pleadings themselves, Articles 5 and 6, don't really have additional uh, facts or different injuries from the uh, allegations of the intentional conduct. And I think the justices and I think the, the parties here were struggling to kind of uh, set forth that. Um, I think, you know, I think the, the uh, Real professionals... quick before we, yeah. before we move on, that, that, that hypothetical is important to remember that the doctor who, the anesthesiologist is not only responsible for the anesthesia, but part of that job is to protect the patient's airway and to right. intubate them if necessary. And, and so what happened in the hypothetical was they, they're too busy committing whatever battery they're doing and they miss that the person is having a, a, uh, an episode where they're not getting up right. and they right. suffer an ischemic injury to their brain. It seems to be two injuries: the battery on the one hand and the ischemic injury to the brain to the other, and that's how they distinguish. It. What an anesthesiologist does in a surgery in a surgical context. Right. And you and you mentioned six twenty two, and there was again a, a debate about whether the six twenty two affidavit is part and parcel of the complaint. And if you look at uh, two six twenty two for healing art malpractice, you said you have to have an affidavit. And part A says, in any action, whether in tort, contract, or otherwise, in which the plaintiff seeks damages for injuries or death by reason of medical, hospital, or other healing art malpractice, the plaintiff's attorney or the plaintiff, if the plaintiff is proceeding pro se, shall file an affidavit attached to the original and all copies of the complaint declaring one of the following. And then it's, you know, you basis the basis of your medical malpractice. And again, it's designed so that there's just not uh, baseless allegations without any foundation in, in actual fact or, you know, strong allegations. And so uh, the, the professional services was asked, well, where, where is the charging documents as well as where is the, the, the 622 affidavit and whether or not the 622 affidavit became part and parcel of the complaint. Um, it's, it, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing that came up and in, in from uh, the, the, the underlying plaintiff here is as, as we've talked about in this show, Pat, and anybody that does insurance law knows, 
the duty to defend broader than the duty to indemnify. And the, 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 the issue becomes if any allegations in the complaint, uh, any counts are deemed to be uh, potentially within coverage, is there a duty to defend all of it? And I think, you know, professional services did a nice job of, of, of addressing that and countering that. They said, you know, there, there's, there's a precedent in Illinois that you, you do have a, a duty to defend because it, it could be false. But once somebody pleads guilty to criminal conduct, intentional conduct, like you said, there's two exclusions here, then that duty to defend can end if, when it's been fully adjudicated. But like you said, one of the issues here, and, and then there's many issues in this case in, in terms of the record, in terms of a lot of things, is that the actual uh, charging document, the actual uh, plea, not attached to the complaint. And so there, there was a lot of discussion by both advocates and a lot of questions from the justices you know, is it possible that, you know, what's in that is not is not going to uh, bounce the, the accounts five and six out of out of coverage? And so, a lot here. I, you know, um, I, I think this is an interesting case. Uh, we'll see what, what the, the the appellate court does with this. Uh, but there's a lot going on here, and it's just like you said. I think the justices on this case may send it back for some cleanup of the record because it's just a mess. It, it is. So I'm kind of previewing what we're going to do, what we're going to say, the result's going to be. I don't think anyone's going to be happy with this result. I think they're going to say, we don't know. Right. Um, so with that, uh, we'll take our next break and come back with Ori versus City of Naperville. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of the Podium and Panel podcast, episode 134. Is a one and a half inch drop between a bridge and a sidewalk de minimis, since the municipality is potentially liable? Can the court use Google Earth Map and take judicial notice of a picture that shows the defect had existed for years before the plaintiff's injury and that the sidewalk was closed by the municipality prior to the plaintiff's injury? If this was before Judge Posner back in his day, he would say, sure. <laughs> he, he, he would have grabbed the photograph himself. Right. And, and sent somebody out there and re, reinvented the, the fall and all that. Do, do these constitute constructive notice or even actual notice? Is a sidewalk inspection program which requires repair of defects of more than one inch that the plaintiff alleges was not an inspection program at all, support that the municipality had a duty? Those are among the questions to be answered with the Illinois Appellate Court 3rd District besides Ori versus City of Naperville that was argued a couple of weeks ago and that Pat found from the vaults. The plaintiff fractured her hip when she was walking late at night in what she claimed was a dimly lit area and she encountered the drop down that she claimed caused her injury. The circuit court granted summary judgment to the city and the plaintiff appealed. Pat, tell us about the oral argument. So uh, this is a very interesting evidentiary question, just as we had, not unlike the, what we've had in the last case, where you've got this, you know, how do you consider the underlying um, guilty plea? How do you consider these things without having them? In this case, they have the Google Maps. 
The justices just aren't sure if they can consider them. And I, I Usually you can take judicial notice of things that are not in controversy. There's no doubt about their veracity. Um, Google Earth seems entirely reliable. Um, the issue here is how you use the Google Earth. But the justices weren't even getting to that point because they didn't believe a foundation had been laid. So let's presume foundation is laid. Though I'm not sure at least one of the justices, I think it's Justice Zenoff, thinks that the foundation has been laid. But let's suppose that it has and they don't take judicial notice. They've taken judicial notice and they admit it somehow. So then the question becomes, can you tell what the amount of that defect is? Because I posted on LinkedIn one of the pictures he refers to, which shows sidewalk closed. Now, of course, the sidewalk closed sign is not on the sidewalk. It's on the road adjacent to the sidewalk of this bridge in downtown Naperville, the Main Street Bridge. And you can see there is some difference between the concrete and the pavers below where the plaintiff fell, but you can't tell how far, how big it is. And you can go back and you can see in Google Earth, you can see pictures in 2012 and 14, I think, and 16 and so forth, that it whatever is there, there's something there. You can't tell how big it is. And that's the, that's the city's point. Well, it's a couple points. Number one, it's that you can't tell how big it is. You can't tell if it's changed or not. And even if you could... That's there's no burden on the city or no duty of the city to go around and search Google Maps every day to see if there's defects around. Um, you know, that defeats the entire point, in addition to which they argue that this is de minimis. So years ago, I posted a, a, po a post that began how de minimis is sufficiently de minimis to be de minimis. Um, and uh, that's one of my favorite opening lines of a post ever. This one's an inch and a half. There's arguments on both sides as to whether that is sufficiently de minimis. And then the parties look at the totality of the circumstance. You know, it's like 1130 at night. There's a lot of pictures of uh, all the pictures taken are during the day, as is typical for a Google Earth image. But there's pictures of a lot of lamp posts and what, but not how much light they provided and certainly not how much light was provided at that time, whether it was a full moon that night or so forth, whether she could see it. One of the arguments that the plants make is she's walking towards it in such a way that it's the drop down is not obvious to her because it's she, she steps down from this thing and that's what causes the the hip fracture uh, allegedly. So the in order to prove in order to succeed on this claim, he has to show that there was actual or constructive notice. And his argument ultimately boils down to willful blindness by the city because they didn't really do any inspection. They only inspected when their, the road was resurfaced, and this road hadn't been resurfaced since 2005. Now, he suggests this, this sidewalk closure shows notice, but he can't show who was repairing the road at that time. I don't know why he couldn't show that. Uh, issue a FOIA request, figure out who, who was repairing the road at that time. You know the exact date when it was done because you know the picture. When the picture was Whose truck is that on your road, closing your closing your sidewalk? Um, it, it should have been able to be found. I don't know why they couldn't have figured it out, but it, it didn't happen. Um, you know, Illinois courts are extremely solicitous of the of the municipalities. Um, I, I've always, not, I mean, if this was a if this was a private sidewalk, we would be having this discussion. They'd have a big problem. Um, and because they don't typically get to take advantage of de minimis on private roads. 
Um, so I, I don't think that this would be particularly successful. Uh, and I'm not sure why it should necessarily be different, but it is under the Tort Immunity Act. Um, that she, you know, she's basically uh, out of luck because she happened to have fallen and injured herself on a on a road or a sidewalk rather owned by a city as opposed to a private person. Um, the evidentiary question is really interesting though, and one that bears for everybody else to keep an eye on because you, I use Google Earth all the time uh, to find things, to see things um, that you, you'd you be surprised what you, you, you've got pictures of. I found vehicles at locations where they were told they weren't supposed to be. I found, you know, you look and see what's actually at the location on a particular date. Years ago, I had a post where I found the damage to the to the uh, building caused by the car that ran through it. It's part of my post about the car that ran through the building wall and saw the, and got the Google Maps image of that having happened. So there's they're immensely useful in you know, use them in depositions and examinations under oath of traffic accidents all the time because they really help show what the you can get right there and figure out what it looked like um, uh, at the time or at least get an idea of what it looked like. Um, so they're really helpful, and it, it, it's I don't understand how judicial notice is not appropriate uh, to, to use them. Uh, they're ubiquitous, and I think they're entirely reliable. Uh, at least no one's shown that they're not reliable. What's Google, you know, changing these things? I don't think there's any evidence of that or any suggestion that that's happened. That would certainly be bad for their business. Uh, this is a great service that they provide, and it should be taken advantage of. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts about the case? I agree with everything you said, Pat, and I think I've mentioned before on this show, we've, we've talked about Google Earth before and Google Maps. We once had a case with a, with an inside employee that uh, had, had uh, skirted our uh, retention of consultants uh, provisions by doing small contracts, and we learned uh, when, when the person exited uh, of this kind of uh, wrongful conduct, and the... Uh, his co-workers pointed out that uh, there was a Google Earth of, of, of the consultant's house and, and uh, the person's car was in the driveway and they knew it from how it was uh, decked out and stuff. They knew it was his and there was a school bus down the street and stuff. So uh, it, it had very strong inferences of uh, that the person was you know closer than we you know may have thought with the with the consultant and there may have been some of that kind of inside ball game but uh i agree with you i, I think it's accurate that, you know it's it's state stamped it's it's uh it, it, it's I, I, i'm not sure either why judicial notice is a problem here it's uh you know we t- i joked about posner but but in these situations this is probably as good as anything right um photographs and stuff are brought oftentimes to uh, cases especially auto injuries, uh, CTA bus accidents. And what you see oftentimes is the reenactments. And so it's not the exact. And if you have an exact photo, like you said, that the car going through the building, that why not be able to use that because it's uh, an accurate snapshot and, you know, it's updated frequently. So I agree with you. Uh, interesting case. And we'll see what, uh, what, what this appellate court does with this case. So with that, that brings us to our... Um bi for COVID, and, and dan we're a little late on a couple things here yeah uh, we should have yeah. covered these last week but so there's three that we need to talk yep. about the first is the connecticut supreme court ruled in favor of insurers the joining New everybody supreme else court, 
joining everybody else, except for Vermont, which right. kind of punted. Then yeah. we have New Jersey took a case. So New Jersey's one to watch because New Jersey is a very pro-insured state. So New Jersey took a case. Then one other one is Broder Health versus Factory Mutual got argued. And if you recall, Factory Mutual is one of those that has somewhat, somewhat entirely different language than the other carriers. And so yep. that got argued in the Seventh Circuit on the 24th. So we'll keep an eye on that. We haven't covered, we didn't cover that one. We might if the, if the thickens get slim. Um, but uh, we've covered it enough, but wanted to point out that that argument is out there and maybe one to keep an eye on. And then, As I say, it's and, specific to factory mutual. Yeah. And, and then they uh, New Jersey. They offered a coverage that no one else really offered. Right, right. Very different language. Uh, New Jersey, uh, j just again for those uh, not familiar with the with the BI cases, uh, New Jersey, the, the District Court of New Jersey, a case that's been relied on by Cajun County and all the cases at the beginning, is a case out of uh, uh, the Northern District of New Jersey, I believe it is, had to do with uh, refrigeration and ammonia, and in, in in, you know analogizing that to things as, as Pat said, the New Jersey. Uh, views on insurance and coverage for business interruption, a lot of other things <clears throat> sometimes can be uh, very pro policyholders. So we'll see if, if they do anything different with that case. Indeed, which brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong. Uh, we are 196 and a half, 44 and a half and 11 for Dan, and 194 and a half, 46 and a half and 11 for me. Big case this week was Tim versus Black Horse Carriers. There is a five-year statute of limitations for BIPA, not a one-year for some parts and a five-year for other parts, five years for the whole thing. Um, so the worst possible outcome for defendants in these cases, at least in this case, we'll see what Cathrone brings, which is deals with the accrual date. Really can't talk about how long the statute is, is until you know when it's accrued. And Cathrone is, does it accrue each time that the person's uh, uh, fingerprint is scanned if this occurs more than five years before and it's only a one-time accrual then you're going to knock a lot of people out of the box so the big one's still to come uh on that and one. that's it's, it's kind of interesting because that case was argued may of last year i think it was and we still don't have a decision we was, uh, pat and i and, and many others kind of predicted that tim's and Cathrone might be uh come out together just because it could answer both questions at once but uh, we skimmed the opinion oh, nice. and looked at it deep. I thought maybe it was referred, not a mention. So who knows what's going on with that case. Yep. Which brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Uh, so Hoosier versus Gardner, they're going to they're gonna reverse on the issue of the, they're going to find that there is standing and they're going to reverse on the ability of the, uh, for fees to be assessed against the plaintiffs and and they're going to take that out of the class notes. Uh, Dan, I, what, are, what are your thoughts? I agree. That? I agree with that. I think professional solutions is going to be reversed, and they're going to say pox on both your houses. Go right. back and do this again. You both suck. That's uh, right. what I think is going to happen. I just right. they're, they're so annoyed with both sides. Uh, right. And then Ori versus City of Naperville is getting a firm. I think it's right. Which brings us to the rule of the week, which, sorry, Corey Webster, we actually had our own rule this week. Um, and this is one that I've been dealing with for the last week or so and have submitted my column for next week on uh, in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin regarding a, a proposed amendment to trial rule 74. And 
in in short, the rule would have uh, would have quote recording through shorthand and stenography is prohibited. In other words, it was requiring there be uh, digital recording of all trial trial and evidentiary hearings in Indiana, and a prohibition on the ability to bring a court reporter or to use a court reporter and how, if you did bring one, how that would get incorporated and become part of the appellate record. All kinds of problems with a proposal of this kind, where there's no ability to do readbacks, there's no backup, you're relying entirely on the on the human who's operating it and for the system not to fail. And as Dan and I can both tell you, and as our, as our um, uh, own little recording system sometimes fails as it did last week. We got too much. Sometimes we get too little. Yeah, uh, you, you got to have a backup. Um, and th- there's difficulties in doing daily copy. There's di- it's all kinds of problems. So my understanding is, is that the rule, the proposed rule is being amended to make it make sense because right now it doesn't make any sense. Uh, the deadline to comment is February 6th at, at noon Eastern time. You can do that online. I have submitted a comment, even though I'm told that the rule is being amended. But uh, keep an idea, or keep keep an eye out for that uh, big change. Dan, anything to add on on that uh, on that rule? No, I think you covered it, Pat. And it'll be interesting to see how they amend it because, as we talked about, yeah, it's, it doesn't seem like it, it's a benefit to anyone. It's hard to tell what the what the real reasoning behind that is. That. How it, how it effectively it's administers no problem justice. With encouraging, no problem with encouraging uh, digital reporting, but prohibiting court report, reporters are essential to a trial or evidentiary hearing because not everything occurs in the courtroom. Um, sometimes they occur in a hall, sometimes they occur in chambers, and you got no recording devices back there. Uh, court reporters, are, you still need them. Uh, and there, though there's a, there, there's a shortage of them, allegedly. Um, eliminating them or prohibiting them it doesn't seem to be the answer. Um, so with that, we'll take our leave and thank everybody for joining us. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.